Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning, we are going to be chatting about the weekly Torah portion that are read in synagogues throughout the world. It is called in Hebrew Lech Lecha, which translates uh, roughly as get yourself out. It runs from Genesis 12 through Genesis 17, uh, verse 27, so it's a rather lengthy portion, and it is a fairly significant portion, for it represents the transition within the sacred texts of the Jewish people from pre-Judaic history, from pre-Israelite history, as reflected in the story of Garden of Eden, the creation of the world, and the flood, to the relationship that is going to uh, blossom between God and the descendants of Abraham. So here in a nutshell are the events that take place in this rather lengthy Torah portion. God speaks to Abram. Notice that in the first verse, he's not known as Abraham, but rather Abram, commanding him, go from your land, from your birthplace, and from your father's house to the land I will show you. There God says he will be made into a great nation, and Abraham, Abram and his wife Sarai, not yet Sarah, but Sarai, accompanied by his nephew Lot, journeyed to the land of Canaan, where Abram builds an altar and continues to spread the message of one God. A famine forces the Jews to depart for Egypt, where beautiful Sarai is taken to Pharaoh's palace. Abram escapes death because they present themselves as brother and sister, a plague prevents the Egyptian king from seducing her and convinces him to return her to Abram and to compensate the brother revealed as husband with gold, silver, and cattle. Back in the land of Canaan, Lot, who has remained there, separates from Abram and settles in the evil city of Sodom where he falls captive when the mighty armies of Chelamador and his allies conquer the five cities of the Sodom Valley. Abraham sets out with a small band of his retinue to rescue his nephew, defeats the four kings, and is blessed by Malchai Tzedek, the king of Salem, which in later rabbinic tradition is known as Jerusalem. God seals the covenant between the parts with Abram in which the exile and persecution of the Jewish people is foretold and the Holy Land is bequeathed to them as their eternal heritage. Still childless, 10 years after their arrival in the land, Sarai tells Abram to marry her maidservant Hagar. Hagar conceives, becomes uh, insolent toward her mistress, and then flees when Sarai treats her harshly. An angel of God convinces her return and tells her that her son will father a populous nation. Ishmael is born in Abram's 86th year. 
13 years later, from the beginning of our story, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which is usually interpreted as meaning the father of multitudes, and Sarai's name to Sarah, the princess, and promises that a son will be born to them. And from this child, whom they shall call Isaac or Yitzchak, meaning one who laughs, will stem the great nation with which God will establish a special bond. Abraham is commanded to circumcise himself and his descendants as a sign of the covenant between Adonai and the people. Abraham immediately complies circumcising himself and all the males of his household. The story seems to end at that point. And of course, there are many questions that emerge from the story as I've so briefly shared it with you. One of the main issues that uh, seems to emerge from this story is the question of how did the Jewish faith come into existence? The Midrash describes the birth of Judaism with the following cryptic parable related to this week's parasha. God said to Abram, go from your land, your birthplace, and your father's house. To what may this be compared, asked the Midrash. To a man who was traveling from place to place when he saw a palace in flames. He wondered, is it possible that the palace has no owner? The owner of the palace looked out and said, I am the owner of the palace. So Abraham, our father, said, is it possible that the world lacks a ruler? And God looked out and said to him, I am the ruler, the sovereign of the universe. Abraham's bewilderment is clear, according to the Midrash. This sensitive human being gazes as a brilliantly structured universe, a splendid piece of art, and he is overwhelmed by the grandeur of a sunset and by the miracle of childbirth. He marvels at the roaring ocean waves and at the silent, steady beat of the human heart. The world, metaphorically, is indeed a palace. But again, Abraham looks out at the world and notices that it is full of bloodshed, injustice, and strife. Thugs and abusers, rapists, kidnappers, and killers are continually demolishing the palace, turning our world into an ugly, tragic battlefield of untold pain and horror. And what happened to the owner of the palace, one might ask? Abraham cries, according to the story, why does God allow man to destroy his world? Why does he permit such a beautiful place to go up in flames? Could God have made a world only to abandon it? Would anyone build a palace? Continuing the metaphor and desert it. The Midrash replies, in the name of God, the owner of the palace looked out and said, I am the owner of the palace. And God looked out and said to Abraham, I am the ruler, the sovereign of the universe. So what does that mean? How do we understand God's answer? Well, to talk with me about this Midrash and other questions that emerge from our parasha is Rabbi Bradley Bleefeld. 
Rabbi Bliefeld has served congregations in North America for over 40 years, serving congregations in Pennsylvania and Ohio, and for the last 22 years has served two congregations in the area of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He has taught numerous classes on the biblical text and Talmud and has been invited as a guest scholar to communities in England, France, Spain, Israel, Jordan, and Australia. He is the author of the book Saving the World Entire, a book on Talmudic stories and parables published by Penguin Plum. He has been married for 49 years, has three wonderful children, four grandchildren. And it is a pleasure to welcome him. Uh, Rabbi Bliefeld, uh, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Rabbi Garten, it's a pleasure to join you today. Uh, we certainly appreciate you being here for our audience throughout Canada and the United States. And I've already introduced the audience our listeners to the story of Abram. And I'm wondering, as a place for us to begin our conversation, how do you understand um, the beginning of uh, chapter uh, 12 in which Abraham receives the call from God? Well, in order to answer that question properly, I have felt since rabbinic school, that you have to go back to the very beginning of the Torah, to the very first word, Bereshit, in the beginning. Because most people think the Torah has one beginning. But as I was taught, and I have taught in response, the Torah really has three beginnings. Abraham is the Third beginning. Ah, so help our listeners understand um, where you see the two other beginnings. Well, in the beginning, God created. That tells us that in the divine intellect, there was a universal hope that all humanity would rise to the occasion and be the kind of partner with the divine that perhaps God uh, would expect. But as we read through the text, we find that humanity, represented by Adam and Eve, were a disappointment. To God. And a disappointment to God. To God. Right. So there was a second beginning. Perhaps the divine intellect said to itself, you know, I can't get everybody to do what they ought to be doing. So, I think I'll try with one family. If I can't get universal humanity to behave in the way they ought to behave, let's try with one family. So Noah is that identifiable family. Noah and his family are saved from the flood. And um, they, too, were a disappointment to the divine. So Abram comes as the third opportunity, in effect saying, 
I can't get everybody on board, quote-unquote. I can't even get one family to act in the way I would wish. Let's try with one or two people. One person, actually, Abram. Let's see if one person can understand that if we're going to perfect the world, if we're going to be partners with the divine, you have to start with yourself. So I see this Torah portion as the culmination of the lesson at the beginning of the Torah, which is a lesson of such great empowerment to every human being. If you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to change the world, you have to start with yourself. Well, it's a fa- it's a fascinating insight, um, and certainly uh, takes a different direction than most of the rabbinic commentators of antiquity, who who, who wanted to speak about. Abram as a unique individual in and of himself, uh, and that he was uh, called by God because of the uniqueness of his own personal intellect or personal insight. And you're suggesting that it's actually God who makes this decision uh, based on the previous experimental failures that Adam and Eve were, as we know, uh, did not live up to expectations, and Noah and his family didn't live up to expectations, and now um, you're suggesting that this one individual um, is called upon um, almost as if um, God is running out of options about who can be the partner in the creation of the world. I see this Torah portion as perhaps one of the most empowering Torah portions in the entire text, because this Torah portion is saying, get yourself going, get up and get going, and, and don't be afraid to leave your comfort zone. From your place. Now we can translate Artsakha as your land, which is the uh, traditional translation. The more literal translation. The literal translation, yes, you're right. Go beyond that and use the land as the metaphor. Use the entire dynamic of Abram as the metaphor. Get yourself out of your comfort zone of the place where you were born, your hometown, even your own household growing up, your father's household. Get up and get out. Get going and explore and look for the vistas that exist before you. Because doing that, you can approach, perhaps never reach, but you can approach your potential. If you stay in your comfort zone your entire life, you may never venture to the place where new horizons open up. But if you're willing to get up and get out and go to a brand new place, and what was that place for Abram and Sarah? It was Canaan. And why Canaan? Because Canaan was in between 
the two major cultural engines of the Middle East, Mesopotamia and Egypt. Both were polytheistic. The only place where Abram could explore monotheism and be the patriarch with Sarah, the matriarch of the monotheistic world, was in a place where he could find neutrality. And where was that? In that little land bridge, that little strip of land between these two great cultural engines that was neutral. So, so, so you're brilliantly moving back and forth between the metaphoric uh, interpretation and a more literal interpretation. So I want to bring you back to your metaphoric uh, interpretation in which you suggest that uh, God is challenging Abram, uh, not with the same challenge that um, Noah had to build an ark or that Adam and Eve had to simply obey God's commandment. But you're suggesting that this whole notion of um, lech lecha, me'artzacha, uh, get yourself up and out of your land of comfort is about one taking a, a journey. And interestingly enough, throughout this portion, Abraham journeys. Um, he goes to Egypt. We're not going to interpret that story for the moment, but he is required to journey to Egypt, as will others in the Torah, especially in the book of uh, Genesis. Um, and then he's required to go to Sodom. And on each of the journeys, he confronts himself more than anything else. Uh, he confronts uh, the notion of truth in uh, Egypt, and he confronts the notion of truth and morality at Sodom. Um, he confronts the notion of um, relationships with Sarah and Hagar. It, it's a, a quite interesting way uh, to understand this personal journey without in any way uh, suggesting that it's um, solely related to the um, story of the beginnings, the origins of the Jewish people. And I want to thank you for that insight. That's really very helpful. And I'm sure our listeners will uh, have much to think about um, as you've challenged them to think about personal journeys and getting out of their comfort zone. But then you went and you went back to the, the more literal and said, well, going to Canaan represents the uh, middle ground between polytheism and no religion. Or... No, they, were, they were both polytheistic cultures. Ah. So Abram had to find a place where he could be himself without the pressures of the surrounding culture telling him you're wrong. He had to get out of Mesopotamia. Could you imagine what his life would have been like if he let all his neighbors all the people around him, the people he did business with, the people he related to. Can you imagine if he said, you know, this polytheism business, it's hooey. There's only one force in the universe, and that's a force for good. He must have felt compelled to get out of there, perhaps even for his life. 
for the well-being of himself and his family, I've got to get out of here. And I can't go to Egypt. I can't stay here. I can't go to Egypt. I've got to find neutral ground. Because for Abram, who is the prototype, Abram is the patriarch of the great monotheist religions in the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So for all of us who are monotheists, who believe in one God, Abram becomes the prototype. And we want to be like our parents, many of us. When our parents are really great role models, Abram becomes the role model of, of how to be in the world in partnership with the divine, how to make the world a better place. So for me, the empowerment of this narrative propels me and, and, and prompts me to teach my students to be empowered to take that leap of faith and, and, and do something wonderful. Do something beyond what you thought was your capability, what your capacity is, what you think it is. Go beyond that and empower yourself to make the world a better place. Just like who? Like Abram. And why? Abram's a patriarch. So on one hand, the message of the Torah portion is a very personal message not a uh, message of peoplehood. It's the message of what each and every individual is capable of achieving. But the Torah portion on the literal level, on the level of the text, seems to be telling us that um, Abraham will be um, a very conflictual uh, individual being a role model in this Torah portion is not easy for Abraham when he goes to Egypt uh, with Sarai, his wife. Um, they're going to encounter the Pharaoh, and he lies and tells Sarai to tell the Pharaoh that she is his sister. Um, and then there are going to be other episodes in the Torah portion where, uh, for example, with Hagar, Ishmael, Sarai, where Abraham is less than straightforward and honest. So how do those stories uh, blend with your interpretation of Avraham being, or Avram being this wonderful role model um, for us to to help us on our journey through life because i see him as i see the biblical personalities that um we read them as human beings they're just like us they're not superhuman their their qualities are positive and they have their their difficulties, their conflicts. You reference the fact that the biblical text exists on multiple levels. The peoplehood level, the personal level, the esoteric level. The beauty of the biblical text 
is that it does exist on these multiple levels. I've always been fascinated by the fact that the biblical text, the Torah, is the only text that, that has ever been provided to humanity that can capture the imagination of a three-year-old and a 103-year-old. When we, we think of our, our babies, our children, and, and think of them in their lives, Many of us, perhaps yourself included, me too, and our children and grandchildren, we put a mobile over their crib of Noah's Ark. The biblical text is capturing their imagination. And the 103-year-old scholar is still bent over the text, reading it, trying to figure it out. Because these people are paradigms, they're real, um, they have their pitfalls and conflicts and problems, and can, we can relate to them, at least I can, in the sense that um, they're not some superhuman character, they're real. Yes, why does Abram lie? Consider that. He must have been so fearful that that the only, the only comfort he could get in navigating through that difficult issue was to say something that wasn't true. So I want to interrupt you because we just have a few minutes left and ask you the following question, Rabbi. You've offered us some wonderful insight into this parasha, and you've um, confronted uh, our listeners with the variety of levels that the Torah is interpreted on uh, by the Jewish people. Um, what would you say to our listeners about what makes this text sacred? Why is it a sacred text as opposed to just a piece of literature? A wonderful piece of literature, a piece of literature uh, certainly worthy of conversation and study in the same way that Shakespeare uh, has been studied for uh, over a thousand years. What, what makes the Torah sacred? I believe that humanity has a role in the universe on Earth. Our role is to partner with the divine to bring about a better world. And, and this text, for me, empowers me. This text, for me, and what I try to do with my students, is to empower them to make the world a better place, to, to come to the realization that I do have a purpose in life. And the purpose is beyond me. And I'm not unique. I'm not special. I'm like everybody else. Which for me, simply says, we're all full of purpose. And our task is to find that purpose. I'm going to have to ask us to leave our conversation there. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Bradley Bleefeld of uh, the area called Philadelphia in the United States 
for joining with me this morning on Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. You can hear a podcast of our conversation on iTunes or the CHRI website. If you'd like to send an email concerning this show or any other show, please address it to jff at chri.ca. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and have a good day. Behold.